What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. My dad didn't think anything was funny. If anything sort of kicked off or if I said anything was unfair, it would be like, life is unfair. It's a veil of tears. And we had this noise that we would make that became just like the David Bowie noise, which was going, and was and was and was and was and was. And this is David Bowie putting on his shoes. And was and was. This is David Bowie opening a door. And was. This is David Bowie writing a letter to his mum. And was and was and was and was and was. I carried on making videos at art school and was rebuked by some of my teachers for being non-serious because, you know, art's not funny. Art's not supposed to be funny. What are you doing making these silly videos? Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped a career, from finding the perfect friends at school to watching 80s teen comedy films. You can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. My guest, Adam Buxton, is hard to describe. You make weird and wonderful things that you can watch and listen to based on things you've been watching and listening to. And whether that's TV or music videos or your own interviews, you're a British-born comedian, broadcaster, writer, actor and champion podcaster. And I think it's fair to say you are kind of a pioneer in parodying popular culture with a sense of the social media commentary around it long before the internet has actually made it quite easy and thousands of pale imitators have kind of sprung up. The Adam Buxton podcast Very is... pale. <laughs> Awful. They're shut in their rooms all pasty and I was and using pale. it in a more of a moral sense. Yeah, but I'm using it in a physical <laughs> okay. sense. And, yeah. well, and we have to say the Adam Buxton podcast is one of the most popular in Britain, is it not? If you count all podcasts, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. You were born in 1969 in London. I want you to take me back to the early Adam. What sort of child were you? Okay, I thought we were going to go back to the 60s. Um, (laughs) What sort of child was I? I think I was nice. I've got children now myself, and I struggle to remember if their behavior is anything like mine. And I think, my parents wouldn't have put up with that kind of thing, would they? Maybe I was miserable too, but I don't think I was. I think I was fairly upbeat and early memories of being... Entertained and happy include listening to the radio. My mum always had the radio on. My dad was away quite a lot. What was your dad doing? He was a travel journalist. So he was um, traveling around the world, 
writing about that. And meanwhile, my mom mainly looked after us at home. Uh, and she, I think, was the person that got me into most of the comedy that I liked at an early age. I don't really talk about my mum that much. It's always the dads that get the books written about them, isn't it? Because they're the ones that properly screw you up. <laughs> Meanwhile, your mum's just being nice. Not all mums, obviously, but she was pretty nice and she definitely was the laugher. My dad didn't think anything was funny. He thought we were all going to hell in a handcart. Really? Yeah. His favorite phrase was, life is a veil of tears. It's a veil of tears. If anything sort of kicked off or if I said anything was unfair, it would be like, life is unfair. It's a veil of tears. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but you were, you say your mum was the laugher and you say there was lots of comedy you yeah. were enjoying growing up. So what sort of comedy was influencing so you? So she would be listening to cheesy DJs on the radio, most of whom I thought were pretty funny. Terry Wogan. Uh, who's no longer with us, but he was a legendary British broadcaster. British-Irish broadcaster. That's right, British-Irish broadcaster. Apologies, I don't want to fight. (laughs) And he would, like, he had loads of funny sort of in-jokes and callbacks, almost all of which went over my head. But uh, he played the odd novelty song, and he did a novelty song, The Floral Dance. And I thought that was very funny. And I just immediately... Chimed with with any kind of silly novelty song, and then we used to listen to Kenny Everett. Sometimes me and my mum, when we were driving Who, around, we must say was not just a groundbreaking DJ. He started in pirate radio, but was a real pioneer of um, parody, splicing his own tapes together. Yeah. His television show was also full of kind of quite revolutionary plays with the technology. Yeah, definitely. He he liked to sort of pull apart the form. And as you say, he was technically very adept. So he would make these amazingly elaborate jingles. And um, he admired Queen. And he was the guy that broke Bohemian Rhapsody as a single. If you see the film, he's in there as a character. Ah, there you go. But he um, took from them, I think, that whole notion of layering up the vocals so much and complex harmonies. And so you'd have these amazingly complex little mini operas as just jingles on his radio show. I mean, now we think about it, there's a direct link between what he was doing and what you do. Were you that conscious early on? Did you latch on to Kenny Everett as, this is what I want to do? No, because, uh, I mean, sort of. He did silly comedy skits, Captain Kremen, and he had these recurring characters on his radio show. And then when the TV show came on in various incarnations... I thought that was amazing. But it didn't occur to me that it was something I could ever do because this was back in the day when all media seemed very otherworldly and totally inaccessible. And the power of the media was sort of centralized and it was in its interests to maintain that idea so that outsiders didn't really get a look in. And crucially, it was broadcast once. And unless you taped it off on your own cassette tape or happened to have an early video recorder, this stuff disappeared forever. That's right. Exactly. Totally ephemeral. All this work was going into it. And so you'd never hear it again. And actually, that was the good thing about some of the radio shows like Kenny Everett's and Mike Reed used to do a show for children that was more or less totally unlistenable, I think. But I I did enjoy it. And he had a dog that barked, a made up dog. He still has that. Oh, the, no, I'm confusing with Tony Blackburn. He's probably confusing him with me. <laughs> <laughs> Although my dog is real on the podcast. I have a podcast. Uh, I have a dog that I speak to on my podcast called Rosie, who's real. Who is real. Um, but when myself and Joe Cornish, my comedy wife, were on the radio uh, on BBC Six Music, we had a made up dog called Boggins. And I played Boggins. And it was really very much in that 
sort of Mike Reed, cheesy radio, semi-hospital radio, you know, tradition, even though that's not what we were setting out to do. What did you want to be when you were a child? Uh, I definitely wanted to be on TV. I thought that would be the most exciting thing ever. But I had no clue how that would happen. It was just a completely nebulous fantasy. And then I only started to take the idea seriously. Like, I wanted to be on TV just for the sake of being on TV. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm a big Bowie fan. And I was always pleased. David Bowie, yeah. I was always um, comforted by the fact that even someone like him, who I would say most people could agree is a fairly substantial artist, right? With some degree of integrity. But he started out just announcing that he was interested in just being famous. He wanted to be thought of as a trendy person. And that was it. It wasn't like, I want to make this or I want to create that. It was like, I'll do whatever it takes to be a celebrity. And And famously um, turned up as an interviewee on kind of current affairs shows. Yeah. So he spent years before he became successful as a music artist. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And eventually, and you know, he started off doing this. He only got some degree of success when he did this novelty song, Space Oddity, to coincide with the moon landings, a song that was so cheesy and throwaway that his regular producer, Tony Visconti, didn't want to have anything to do with it because he said it was beneath him. But all those, I, I felt the same way about all those sort of things. I liked novelty songs. I liked silly throwaway things and ephemera and comedy, um, especially. I really liked uh, a novelty song called uh, Hello Mudder, Hello Father. Yes, about summer camp. Yeah, by Alan Sherman. Hello Mudder, Hello Father, here I am in Camp Granada. <laughs> and it goes on about how terrible Camp Granada is. Like, I didn't know any, like, what's a summer camp? Yeah. You know, I've never been to a summer camp. That's an American thing. And it goes on about how appalling it is. There's alligators, people getting anthrax. I don't know what. <laughs> uh, but then at the end of it, the son comes out. He makes friends with a couple of children. And he goes, mother, father, kindly disregard this letter. Anyway. And I just thought, that's great, because that's a whole, that's like a whole proper little story. And a whole world that it created. And you're right, there's something about the 70s which produced a lot of those novelty records. The other thing that happened in the 70s was you started to get a lot of the new technology, you know, early video cameras, which were huge, um, early video recorders. And people who grew up in that decade like you sometimes turn out to have been very early adopters of it, early home computers too. How did you regard them? Did they play a big role in your childhood? Not so much technology. I mean, there was no whiff of computers when I was growing up. Not until I was about, you know, in my 20s did I get familiar with computers, thanks to my younger brother, who is now an IT guy. And he was into that. He taught himself how to use it. And that changed my life in in my 20s. And strap on. That's right. And a camera (laughs) connected with a big cable. to this thing and you'd wander around I remember going on a skiing holiday that my dad was writing about and skiing (laughs) down the side of a mountain with this giant VCR strapped to me praying that I wasn't going to fall over and break this thing because it didn't belong to us Um, and then you'd go home and you'd play these big old VHS tapes of your holiday and it was just magnificent and so exciting and then I also figured out that I could tape programs off the TV and this was before VCRs were common I think in Mm -hmm. most households and so at Christmas time, when the big movies would come on, oh, mate, I was going to tape Star Wars and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was just so exciting. I taped this film called Alligator. I don't think 
people like Edgar Wright know what alligator is, but most normal people don't. But I watched the absolute living hell out of Alligator until I knew every single line. And a film called Roller Coaster with Timothy Bottoms. Oh, yeah, about that terrorist who That's blows right. roller coasters. Yeah, I remember that. George Siegel. So that was transformative. And then when I met Joe, my, uh, my comedy partner, at school when we were very little, 13, 14, he, would, he wanted to be a filmmaker, so he'd come and hang out at my house and we'd just do sketches. And, and we'd, not film them. Yeah, we'd edit in camera. So I, you press stop and that's your edit and then you press start <laughs> again in the next scene and that was it. So there was no other editing beyond that. But we got quite good at it and we'd more or less just recreate Monty Python sketches. Like I always remember me and Joe bonding over this Not the Nine O'Clock News sketch. Which was a BBC a satirical show yeah. in 1979. Where Rowan Atkinson started and Pamela Stevenson and uh, Mel Smith, Griff Reese jones these amazing performers who all went on to bigger and better things. And it was, the, it was kind of the adults show, you know. So it felt very naughty to be watching it as a youngster because it was quite sweary and most of it went over your head. But it had this sketch about these spies meeting or something and it was Mel Smith meeting Rowan Atkinson and he was sort of saying, ah, hello, um, Vladimir, the the ducks are going south for winter this year, and you know they're sort of speaking in code in order to establish that they would, that they were um, who they said they were, and so me and Joe got into this whole thing of always speaking in code the whole time in this way, and we thought we'd got it off the sketch, but then I watched the sketch again the other day, and that's just the first two lines. The rest of the sketch is about something totally so you just different. Spun it off, yeah, yeah. Tell me about this friendship in your uh, school days, because you. Um, and Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux, I should say, who was another friend, were all at Westminster School, it's a yes. school in London. What, what, how did you meet? What did you do together? So Westminster School for Arrogant Young Men is a uh, expensive educational establishment that my dad bankrupted himself sending me to because he thought it would turn me into a fine young man who would definitely go to Oxbridge. And he was a bit gutted when it turned out that I just ended up meeting Joe and Louis and ended up sort of making a lot of lavatorial jokes on Channel 4 waggling toys. But that was years later. Initially, me and Joe, yeah, we bonded. Literally, the first words we said to each other were the not the nine o'clock news sketch words. And then it became clear that we were just into a lot of the same pop culture stuff. He always wanted to be a filmmaker. He now is. He made a film called Attack the Block. He's got a film called The Kid Who Would Be King, which is coming out now. He was obsessed with films and knew just a lot more. He had that kind of deep level Tarantino, Edgar Wright style, nerdy, obsessional knowledge and enthusiasm for films of all kinds, but mainly sort of cult, mainstream, that kind of thing. When it just at the cusp of people starting to take those things seriously, you know, when the whole idea of postmodernism and flattening out all culture and there being no such thing as high or low yes. culture was just beginning to take hold, you know, but hadn't done just at that point. So we just go to the movies all the time and see um, a mixture of art house stuff, but more accessible art house, you know, Betty Blue, things like that. I remember going to see that with Louis and Joe. And Did you uh, make your own films together as well? We did a version of Sweeney Todd, I remember. Um, that Joe filmed and I was the deal was I was in them and Joe would film them because I was trying to get my face on TV or film somehow and and I was happy to uh, pull faces and show off and Joe would be behind the camera uh, we did plays we did a production of Bugsy Malone 
we did a production of this thing called Private Wars, which is, was about Vietnam vets in a convalescent home. And they've all got PTSD. It's quite a sort of serious... <laughs> Your teenage boys. Yeah, exactly. Posh teenage boys. Let's do that. That's the best play that we should be doing. And my dad, I remember, read the, read the play and said, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's a bad idea. That's going to be bad for everyone. It's going to embarrass you. Uh, people won't like it. You're not going to nail the accents. You know, they, they, we had to do sort of New York accents for these guys with PTSD. <laughs> And uh, but we just thought, yeah, well, they were swearing in it. I remember, and it was funny, and it was not a kids' play. So we we just thought that it would be cool to do it and sort of grown up. And it was Joe's idea. <laughs> Blame Joe. Yeah, um, but it's interesting that you didn't sort of see limits of what you should attempt, which I think is really delightful. And I think when I look at your kind of the weird videos, the little musical pieces you create, which often have huge amounts of craft that have gone into them for a jingle or a little song. Thanks. It does make me think of Andy Warhol or even Dada. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. And you yes. went to art school rather than film school like Joe. <laughs> I wondered yeah. how that shaped you. I definitely liked the idea that this stuff could be something more than totally ephemeral. Because that's the thing about comedy, of course, right? Is that it it won't be taken seriously because it's not supposed to be taken seriously it's silly and throwaway and also as human beings we don't really f remember we don't really retain moments of uh, lightness and happiness in the same way that we do moments of misery and those are the things that really make an impact on people that they take away with them and they carry with them and and that people take seriously that's if you're going to make a film that's going to win an oscar you're not going to make a comedy film so i always thought that there was a way of having comedy that was that did aspire to being something a bit more, you know, that had a bit of pretension to it. And so I liked artists who, like Jeff Koons, mm. who uh, definitely had a sense of humour. And I liked the whole business of trying to pass to um, what they were actually up to. Like, are these people... How are you with swearing on this? Rather not. Well, let's try it. <laughs> well, are these people utter tosspots? <laughs> Or is there something knowing and funny going on here? Is there a joke that we that is being played on us? Is part of the experience of this art trying to define like what's going on? What are we supposed to mm. take seriously and what is a joke? And so those were my favorite artists who there was something funny and silly and provocative going on. Like Warhol, that whole sort of silly, inscrutable persona that he you know, created and then grew into and then just became him. It's also interesting that Warhol's one of the first to take video art seriously. Right, yeah. And I'm thinking in the 1980s, which is, you know, with MTV, when the music video becomes a huge art form and so much of what you've become famous or one of the things you've become famous for, which is your bug live events, you know, you've explored videos, music videos, but also more recently kind of stuff people post on YouTube. You know, and it's become a kind of weird art form. People don't quite know how far it's art and it isn't. What fascinated you about videos? What did you want to do with them? I think the thing about videos in that way was purely the fact that it was homemade. The fact that you could do it yourself 
And suddenly, oh my God, there I am on TV. And yes, it's not broadcast TV and only my friends are going to see this. But still, there was something just aesthetically about actually seeing your stupid face on a TV screen that was really exciting. And then I, you know, me and Joe would make mainly parodies of TV shows. There was a show called The Word on at the time. A kind of youth show of the 90s. Yeah. And we did a parody of that called the turd and we would just be acting like these goofy presenters on there and um do fake interviews with made up celebrities and do you know what i find really interesting is when you then get your own show on six music but even before when you start you become bbc presenters and you're at glastonbury getting pop artists real artists to perform on little kind of dinky toy drum sets and things yeah in a way what's amazing is people don't do that now you actually do they not? Not really. You and Joe seem to have put some genuine fun and parody into pop music at a time when it was taking itself too seriously. And I think it started taking itself too seriously again. Maybe. I mean, we always felt as if it was fun to take the mick out of things we loved because, you know, I mentioned David Bowie before. Mm. But as a David Bowie fan, you really need a sense of humour about your favourite guy. Because he goes on all sorts of strange missions throughout his career. Some of them are absolutely terrific and 100% work. Others really don't. And we grew up when he was um, in a bit of a slump in the 80s. And he was doing, he, he was all over the place, you know. We, we all loved his music, but we all would take the mick out of him as well. And we'd all, we'd sit around and sometimes when we'd meet up on a Saturday night, we'd just sit around and have a few drinks smoke a few jazz cigarettes, and we'd all talk like this. Like, we'd all be David Bowie. And so we'd say, um, yeah, and it would just be, David, how are you doing? And Louis Theroux would be sat there, and Joe would be sat there, and we'd all be talking like this, and we'd all be saying, this is how David Bowie puts on his... Um, we had this noise that we would make that became just like the David Bowie noise, which was going, based on the fact that, you know, his when he said S, sometimes Bowie, it would sound a little bit like a Z. Like, there would be a slight sound like that. I'm exaggerating, obviously. This is not an accurate Bowie impression. But so we'd just sit around and the impressions would just devolve into... And, whiz, and, whiz, and, whiz, and, whiz. and this is David Bowie putting on his shoes. And whiz, and whiz. This is David Bowie opening a door. And whiz. This is David Bowie writing a letter to his mum. And, whiz, and, whiz, and, whiz, and, whiz, and, whiz. and it's always just be like that, like not... Proper jokes, but just making those sounds. So, yeah, just that idea of being irreverent with things that you actually really love. I don't think we were ever interested in sort of doing massive takedowns. Also, those weren't very political times. I mean, they were. Obviously, there was politics going on. But there was goodies and baddies in those days, right? And we felt as young people, we're with the goodies. We don't like the racists. We don't like those guys over on the right. And everything was very simple. Oh, those people on the right, they're morons. So we don't need to worry about politics because it's all fine. And, and there's a very clear division and, uh, and the good guys are going to win out. It seem like innocent times. I mean, yeah. tell me about how you launched your TV career because it was Takeover TV in 1995, yeah. wasn't it? What was the premise that you and Joe... So I went to art school when Joe went off to film school after we left Westminster and we carried on making videos and I basically ended up sending in a lot of the videos that we'd made, including some of the stuff that I made at art school. I carried on making videos at art school and was rebuked by some of my teachers for being non-serious 
because, you know, art's not funny. Art's not supposed to be funny. What are you doing making these silly videos? Are you using this as a stepping stone to get on TV, said one tutor. <laughs> no, I'm not. I promise. I'm. This is serious stuff. Anyway, so I sent some of these videos in to a, a, a TV show after seeing an ad in the back of a music paper, the NME, asking for sort of irreverent, funny, silly, weird videos for a new public access type show called Box Pops, it was then. Anyway, this show turned into something called Takeover TV, which was riding the wave of a kind of nascent camcorder culture. Mm. And in those days, you know, in the UK, we didn't have the public access uh, culture that that existed in America, where a lot of people on the margins expressed themselves. But we didn't have that in the UK. When this kind of footage started to turn up on British TV, it was always quite worthy. And it was people sort of saying... I'm sick of the fact that my council won't take away the bins on time. You know, I pay my taxes. It was all this kind of stuff. That was what TV companies thought ordinary people were like. That's all they wanted to do. Give them a camcorder. They're going to go on about why aren't the bins being collected. Well, what sort of things were you doing then that got noticed and picked up? The production company got in touch with us, said, we really like these videos you've sent in. Do you want to come and A, help us make the show and B host a a few episodes. So yes, please, to both of those. Then the project for the production company became to try and find people who would just make some stuff, like for Christ's sake, will you just make some things? They'd find people they liked who'd made one good tape and they'd say, make more, make loads more. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough to fill this show. And me and Joe ended up being a couple of the people that they turned to to just sort of make content, although they didn't use that word in those Mm. days. Joe, together you you got the Adam and Joe show at Channel 4 in 1997. Yeah. What did you feel you were doing? What, what did you use your voice for? The stuff that stood out from the bits and pieces we did for Takeover TV were these little parodies that we did with toys. This was years before a show like Robot Chicken existed, for example. Yes, hi, welcome to the show. Tonight we've got fat aliens, look at that freak, and we've got Princess Leia on the show, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, but first, let's see what my buddy Luke's been doing this week. Come on, let's point at him. Luke! Yeah, hi. Now, Luke, I happen to notice when you arrived here tonight that you're still driving that old land speeder of yours. Uh, let's just compare your ickle land speeder to my big new X-Reg Millennium Falcon, which cost me one hour's wages. I remember thinking it would be great to have, to do almost like kitchen sink drama, serious kind of confrontations, domestic arguments, things like that, but do it with Star Wars figures. So you have stormtroopers at home having an argument about why haven't you made the bed and things like that, you know. And at that point, I wasn't aware of anyone else having done it. A few years later, there was a thing called Troopers, which was one of the very first things that became kind of viral on the Internet, I remember, where where someone had got hold of a load of stormtrooper costumes and filmed, done quite a nice job of, of doing something that looked as if it might be a Star Wars outtake. But it, they were just riffing on yeah. on the private but lives. But I'm interested of these that you and Joe really were doing it early, was before the technology existed to make it widespread. Mm. And then, you know, when I think of more recently with your events like Bug, which sells out the BFI, where it's you at your computer, kind of looking at YouTube postings, and part of the joy is the live event of it, with you reading out the comments. 
Here's a selection of real comments from the online massive. Starting off with, apple pie is good to eat. <laughs> Who has this to say? Perfect video. Dancing with time? Tangoing with the fourth dimension? <laughs> is time being used as a metaphor? And if so, then what does it represent? Is it a drug reference? <laughs> I bet the goose represents something here, doesn't it? Anyway, good stuff. Oh, and dear yellow one, I feel the need to tell you that your pants are spicy. I was watching one last night and I, I was just laughing out loud. And I, I actually tried to work out why is this so funny? Have you worked out why it's so funny? Because um, when you describe it, as I say, it's you at your computer just reading out things on the internet. It shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm glad you think that. I'm sure there are some people who might not agree. But I think it's cathartic <laughs> because I think most people now have had the experience of being stung or hurt or getting into an unpleasant confrontation online. And it's a peculiar feeling that doesn't really exist in the real world, a kind of... It, makes a kind of knot in your stomach of anxiety and and a feeling of injustice that will never really be resolved. Part of what I do at the bug shows, the live shows, is in between the music videos we show, as you say, I read out some of the responses that people leave, particularly on YouTube underneath them. In the olden days, at the dawn of YouTube, people would get into really elaborate back and forths. Now people aren't so chatty anymore. It's Everyone's just in it for the one comment and then they go off. But anyway, there's still some amusingly wrong-headed and badly spelt comments which uh, always make me chuckle. Well, I mean, the thing is, there's real editing that goes into your work. Yeah. But you just don't show it. It's all hidden. So when you're reading out those comments, you've clearly chosen them carefully. You put on these great voices. You're analysing the characters behind them, but you're not showing racist or abusive stuff. I'm interested in your relationship with editing and also with podcasts, which although... They are different to radio. There's always the safety, isn't there, of editing. Yeah. How important is it to you in how you use your voice and how you present your work? Um, yeah, massively, I would say. I, I feel as if that's the only thing that I have over a lot of other podcasters is that I'm prepared to spend longer than most people would actually editing the conversations I have with people because I'm not someone who's naturally very good at just talking off the cuff. I do need editing. And also, I think the, the guests often benefit from it as well. You know, I don't want to edit too much because then you take away some of the charm of the medium. Because we should say, of course, your podcast doesn't sound it. It sounds really natural. I'm glad. Sometimes sometimes I, I rush it and you can hear it on headphones. You know what I mean? The edit, when the edits get a bit harsh. But I'm glad. I do spend a while trying to make it, to, trying to keep it naturalistic. But if someone goes, I mean, I mean, as you now know, I'm someone who goes off on tangents quite a bit and I find it hard to rein myself in and sometimes it really disrupts the flow of a thing and sometimes other people do that too and so sometimes it's nice just to to tighten things up or, or or lose a tangent that really doesn't add anything to the whole conversation so I'll record for a couple of hours generally and then tighten it up to about an hour and then it's just a nice experience I think for for a listener there's an awful lot of amateur podcasters or people out there, you know, vloggers now on the internet, yeah. all doing their own versions of parodies. Some of them are very long. What's your view on them? Is it too much of it or do you just think good on them? Oh, definitely good on them. Yeah. I just think that it's turned out that uh, now that anyone can have access to more or less any medium they choose, the thing that really stops them 
getting discovered is just the, the, the volume of stuff that's out there. So that's the new challenge. And unfortunately, that challenge is being met by a kind of tedious self-promotion on social media. You know what I mean? People feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to make it unless I'm badgering people the whole time. Will you retweet this? Will you retweet that? And I just find that really awful. What advice do you have for you know, the equivalent of a young Adam Buxton who now is starting out in school with all the possibilities and the risks of those varieties of social media platforms and finding their voice. I mean, it's tricky because this, as I, as I was saying that, I was sort of thinking, well, it's all very well for me. You know, I've been on TV. I'm not very well known, but I do have a profile. And so I, I can build on that to some degree. And I don't, I'm lucky not to have to go out and hustle in that way. But I really would say, like, if it's any good at all, people are going to find it. People are ravenous for good stuff. And word of mouth still works and social media as well. But I don't think it's your job to hustle for your stuff. I think it's your job to make it as good as you possibly can and figure out what's good about what you do and hone it and tighten it and keep doing it. And then it'll be good and it'll be a lot better than all those twats who've spent all their time social networking and, you know, don't really bother with all the stuff that would improve the content. You know what I mean? It does come back to content, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Can I ask, because your friendship at school was such an important part of how you found your voice. And I hear you all are doing exactly different things. You're obviously all still friends, but Joe Cornish is in Hollywood. Louis Theroux is making his films. I you mean, he do- goes to Hollywood. And he goes. always, but he's been to Hollywood. You know, I've been to Hollywood. <laughs> He's mainly in Brixton. Okay. Let's be real. He's in South London. That's where he lives. But are, are That's you, where he belongs. Are you, um, so did you consider yourselves a unit? In the way that yeah. obviously for many years you did work together. I mean, what's your relationship like now? What are your plans, if any, for maybe doing things again together? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, we've got such different lives now. Mainly we see each other when it's time to do our Christmas podcast because we, we, we were on the radio for a long time, myself and Joe, first of all on XFM and then on Six Music. And it became a tradition that we would do a, a festive podcast. Um, and then when we stopped doing the radio together and I started doing my own solo podcast, um, I thought it would be nice to carry on doing that. In some ways, it was nice for me to have a clean break from Joe and to do shows that were not that didn't always have to be funny. Sometimes I talk to people who, um, you know, it's usually quite a, sometimes it's quite a serious conversation I have with people on the podcast. Not the kind of thing that I would do with Joe necessarily. When Joe and I get together, we definitely revert to being silly boys and talking about movies and just make each other laugh. And so that's very, very nice to maintain. Joe gave me a small part in his film in The Kid Who Would Be King. I do feel as if he could take me a little bit more seriously as a, 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 an acting talent. I'm very powerful. I have a huge range. But so far, he hasn't availed himself of that resource. There's still time. But no, we, our lives are so different. I have three children. I live out in the country. Joe is not married. He doesn't have children. He's married to his job. <laughs> what do you want to do next? Because you have all these really interesting projects that are running in yeah. parallel. But do you have something that you've, you're planning on doing that you're waiting to do? No. No, I don't. Because <laughs> I feel, I, de- I, I do feel deeply mediocre. I know a lot of people Seriously, feel like Seriously, you that. say that? Yeah, of course. Everybody feels that, right? Uh, to some degree. And some people are just better at covering it up or they have success and they hook up with the right people that get them beyond that hump 
and they find a routine and a way of working. I was talking to you before we went on on, on air about how important it is to find a producer mm-hmm. and stuff if you're on TV or radio or podcasting. It it will totally transform the thing if you find someone who is willing to take that role is not going to get bent out of shape by not being the face of whatever you're working on, but will support you and and help you do things as well as you possibly can. That will transform everything for you, you know. So I've kind of got myself into a position where I'm lucky to have my friend Seamus who helps me with the podcast. That's fine, but left to my own devices, I just piss about and waste hours and hours and also i'm lucky enough to be able to spend lots of time with my family and play video games with my daughter and things like that i I feel like that's work that's important that's the stuff i'm not going to regret i don't think you know sometimes you watch award shows and things like that and you think what am i doing with my life where's my legacy (laughs) and then you think oh listen to yourself your legacy i just think you you know Things will come along. There's always something to take the mick out of. Definitely. Adam Buxton, thank you so much. Hey, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasset. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.